it's like a giant full page just text with with the two characters looking at each other and after oh, he gives yeah. that full explanation the the police officer she just like damn like <laughs> and, uh, yes that's that was my reaction too that's a lot to just put out there suddenly yeah, and it's so unnecessary. I mean, you, uh, you when you had the hot lady doctor who actually never comes back, she gives this explanation of quarks or whatever, and you're like, all right, it's some weird mumbo-jumbo involving quarks, and that's all you really need. You don't need the full, he's got more quarks than anybody else. <laughs> it's over 9,000. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anakin. <laughs> Imagine a world where people had superpowers. Like the entire genre of superhero comics. Well, imagine a world where only black people have superpowers. Oh, like X-Men with less white people. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So as mentioned numerous times on this show, we are not going to pretend that we are even marginally qualified to comment on the black experience in America. But the past several months, which has been a bit of a dumpster fire throughout 2020, has actually had our country having a long overdue conversation about race. Wait, I just say that the entire 2020 has been a dumpster fire, just not the past several months. Well, we're not, no, no, January wasn't bad. I enjoy January. Yeah, okay, January and February. Okay, you're right. Except for January and February, it was a dumpster fire. It still is. We're still in a dumpster fire. <laughs> so anyway, a long overdue conversation about race is what, you know, what, one of the silver linings of this year, I would argue. That yeah, that's that's a that's I guess we can call it the thinnest of silver linings that we're talking about race, <laughs> which is like we have been talking about that for the past I don't know hundred years. <laughs> well, anyway, so now it's time for some long overdue reading. So this week we're talking about Black and its sequel, Black AF, by Kwanzaa Ozajefo, 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 and artist Tim Smith the Third, Tim Smith Three, and Jennifer Johnson, respectively. The books made quite an impression on the market when they came out of a massively successful Kickstarter, ultimately released from 2017 to 2018 by Black Mass Studios, and was recently announced to being adapted to film by Warner Brothers. The book posits that in a world that already hates and fears them, what if only black people had superpowers? In book one, we meet the protagonist Kareem, a young man gunned down by the police who miraculously survives and discovers a long-held conspiracy held secret over the years. And the powers that be and the powers that have don't want the world knowing for very different reasons. You can probably guess where that story goes. Book two has a pretty unique take in the already established universe as we follow a young woman, Eli, with a very small villain origin story as she navigates the brave new world, as well as dealing with some drama with her adoptive father. So the usual superhero fisticuffs aside, Black makes room for commentary with a pretty unique premise. It's at times ambitious, at times revolutionary, and sometimes even cringe-inducing. But regardless of how you feel, the book does leave its mark. I'm Roman Sagal. I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two Asian dudes that get way too serious about their comics and need to be reading more comics by non-white American or British dudes. So to help dive into this week's book, we're welcoming back to the show, friend of the pod, Paresh. Hello. Who is also not black. <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on, Paresh. You're not black? What the okay, hell, dude? Okay, fine. All right. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. It's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, Fresh, uh, welcome back. So what have you been up to since the last time we spoke? How's the uh, Dick Grayson fan fiction coming? <laughs> it's, I mean, if you guys want me to hijack the podcast again, I'm happy to do that and talk all day about Dick Grayson. Sounds like a spinoff podcast. <laughs> Sounds like a spinoff podcast, indeed. No, I mean, you know, since we last spoke, I've been getting more into 
some comic books introduced to me by yours truly, Roman. Not yours truly. You. By you? you. You've been, you. been introduced you. I, I, I used that word wrong. By you. Hawkspox, specifically. So I hear it's like mutant C-SPAN. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good description of it. <laughs> I listened to you said that. It's really smart guys. <laughs> I actually really like it. Did you guys not like it? I haven't listened to your podcast on it yet. Well, well that's why you're kicked off the show. <laughs> I was going to listen to it after I read it. Finished. Fun, fun fact, Ryan. <laughs> Paresh told some of his friends that he was on this comic book podcast and they went and looked up quarantine comics and they were like, Paresh, that didn't sound like you on the podcast. <laughs> this guy sounded way dumber than you. <laughs> that is not what anybody said. Anybody who listened to this podcast, my friends or not my friends, have all said great things. But anyway, uh, they, they wouldn't be your friends if they I, said. Guess, I guess not. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm glad to be here. I read Black and, and Black AF just now, like literally today. And I have some thoughts. I definitely have some thoughts, but I don't want to jump ahead. So we like I'll thoughts. let you guys take it. Well, let's dive in, Ryan. What did you think of Black? So it kind of felt like this is what happens when you have a really good concept, but kind of forget the story. The second, <laughs> the second one, actually, it could have been a lot better than what it was because the concept is, I think, is fucking phenomenal. It had a great fundamental premise. It's just that they got so interested in almost kind of detailing what the story was, particularly in the first volume. The second volume, Black AF, was was definitely better. But they got so kind of caught up in building this world, they did it so quickly and overlooked some of the fundamentals, I think, of storytelling, like basically just having good characters, laying out the conflict in a way that makes sense it was sort of like a jumble of ideas the first volume in particular and it's, it's really in the second volume where you kind of establish all of that foundation and you can move ahead with a story that's a little bit more interesting so that's kind of my broader thoughts on the two volumes yeah the one thing i'll say is what there are a lot of things that frustrated me about volume one but they didn't leave anything to the imagination. They just tried mm. to put everything they wanted to on. It was like the kitchen sink. And there are other things, but I don't know, Paresh, what are your reactions? I thought it was a major disappointment, honestly. It, it was, like Ryan said, such a tantalizing concept full of so much promise. And I do still think there's potential in it, but the character building was non-existent to some degree, um, especially with just how quickly some things moved. I wasn't a big fan of that. And I mean, going into a specific concept, I actually wasn't a big fan of how they had chosen to develop the the world in terms of this goes back hundreds of years and all of that stuff. I actually think because of how it relates the real life tragedies of the black experience, especially here in America, I think it impacts that in a negative way, actually. I could get into it. I don't know if I should get this. That, yeah, right yeah actually, I'm kind of curious. That's That's a pretty sharp condemnation. That what was so could, yeah? Could you could you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah. So I mean the the premise here that they talk about is that black people are the only people with superpowers, and it's been that way for with the, poten a, with the potential for superpowers. With, correct with the potential for superpowers, and it's been that way for a long, long time, hundreds of years. They insinuate that that is why slavery started at some point, which mm -hmm. is almost a slap in the face to. Where, whereas I don't think yeah. I don't think you need another excuse for slavery right here in terms of what like it's already a huge tragedy it's already a huge black mark on humanity right it's not a good <laughs> thing to begin with and then this almost I don't know this kind of 
I want to choose my words carefully. I feel like it's making excuses for it in a way. It's like, okay, yeah. well, slavery exists because well, I want to defend that potentially. I want to defend slavery. No. <laughs> <laughs> Things to be taken out of context on a podcast. If comic books and superpowers are a metaphor for empowerment, where it becomes, and I, I thought about that one specific thing that you were saying, Paresh, over the, the last week or so after I read it. Effectively, what they're saying is, or what maybe what Kwanzaa's trying to say, symbolism, metaphor, whatever it is, is we had power. We have power, be it with superpowers or not. We as black people have power, and they wanted to take it away. Mm-hmm. It, and it's a commentary where you get to say what I love about science fiction, what I love about fiction is you can say, oh, we're not talking about something. We're talking about aliens. We're talking about superpowers, not killer robots, you know, and they effectively said they wanted to take our power away. They wanted to suppress our power. It's a metaphor. Is it well used? I don't know. Is it a little too on the nose? That That's an optimistic think, version of that. Shocking coming well, from Roman, I think, actually, but... I think you're both right, actually. When I cut, you know, I hearing this assessment because on the one hand, you're right. The superpowers here is a metaphor for black empowerment, and the reason they are enslaved within the narrative of these comics is it, it takes away that power. But Paresh is also right. What made slavery in America especially cruel is that it was dictated on on racial grounds, right? It was driven by by racism well, fundamentally it was just, it, as well it as it was greed. just and, cruel. It was just cruel to begin with, right? It, the, but people talk about how, oh, you know, other cultures enslave people. They enslaved prisoners of war. In America, it was based off of race. Mm-hmm. That is unique and uniquely cruel and disgusting about yeah. American slavery. And so giving it this element of they took us away because we had superpowers kind of takes away from that racial element. So in that, on that sense, Paresh, I do agree. I also agree that the creators were trying to make it a metaphor for stripping away black empowerment. So... I'm up in the middle. Like I can see what the what the writers were doing, which is how Ruman is thinking about it, versus the maybe the unintended consequences sure. of making this narrative. This to be fair, I think they had an attempt, they had a concept, and they whiffed it. And in subsequent attempts, book two, I just discovered there's already a book three out and a book four that's about to come out. Maybe they just had to like throw it all against the wall and then pull back from it a little bit. Well, here's an alternative. I mean, I think immediately when I read Oh, great. This- the brown guy's rewriting the black guy's comic book now. <laughs> no, I'm serious here. <laughs> I actually thought, you know, when I only read the, the concept and the teaser and what it was, I actually thought it was going to go in this direction, that all of a sudden, only black people are manifesting powers, right? Now. It's happening now. It's yeah. almost like an evolutionary like advantage right. that's going against all the trauma that they've suffered. And it's basically their survival mechanism to advance in this world now. And I thought that's what what it would be about. And I thought that would be more exciting to actually dissect. Yeah, I wanted more from this. And again, I was pleasantly surprised by book two. But, but the thing that still kills me is they reveal everything. They show everything yeah. in book one. Yeah. Like. I would want the insidious plot of this has been going on for 700 years to come out in book three or book four, you know, like open it up where you think this is just a recent phenomenon because, you know, what they say about conspiracies are why most of them are bullshit is because when you increase the order of magnitude of people who know a secret, you can't keep a secret. 
you know? And so the fact that hundreds or thousands of people, there's like three warring factions, the man and the shadow governments, Mm. the black freedom fighters for crusading. And there's two different black factions, basically. And you have three factions with hundreds of people fighting the secret war beneath all of society. And it's not believable. it's basically the. I mean, I just went with it in the same way. I go with a radioactive spider can bite Peter Parker and he'll turn into Spider Man. I don't really want an explanation for why that's true. So it's sort of this just premise concept that okay, we'll just go with it was hidden. But well, I think you meant. I think you meant to say a second radioactive spider could bite Miles Morales. <laughs> was Sorry. it? A s- yeah, <laughs> but you know what? I mean, actually, to that point, they. You know, it's essentially the Professor X Magneto dynamic in the first volume. Yeah, a lot of X-Men vibe. With a little bit of Neo. Right, which is repeated in volume two. You again have that Professor X Magneto dynamic with the two sisters. It's just more singular. So in in a way, you, you kind of want them to explore that tension in a way that's a little bit, oh, I don't know, more nuanced, but maybe just in a way that we haven't seen before. And they kind of repeat that conflict twice, which is something that- thing- that bothered me. One one thing I really respected about book two, Black AF, is when it's thinner, they held back. They, they mm. didn't knock it out of the park completely. It's a solid triple, right? But it's in the same universe. Kareem shows up, but he's not a major character, right? Mm-hmm. He's a background character that stitches a little bit of this. He's the one familiar element, but they don't spend any time with him. And they but don't he had more personality in those few moments. I felt like I got to know him better almost than I did in the first book. Yeah, I just book this second book was just so much more subdued and the use of propaganda and the Fox News elements on top of things. Like there's just the Helen show. How about that? That was that was funny to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was or, in the yeah, opening I mean, three pages of of Black AF, there was more interest and creativity in both this character Eli, as well as her reaction to everything that's happening, all of the little snaps that she's creating, all of the the news footage that she's consuming, all of that it does a great job both building her world and creating her as a character. And you never see any of that in the first volume. So like the right. first three pages of volume two, I was like, oh, this is, I mean, the illustration also is like beautiful, full color. Oh, it's night and day. Never mind yeah. even the color, just... The abstraction of it, like I, I respected the art of Tim Smith three in book one, but it was so literal and trying to be perfect. And it was clear Jennifer Johnson just really kind of decided to step back like several steps with, with what she was doing. There, there was a warmth to it, I think. Oh, yeah. I, I think getting away from all of the backstory or all of the conspiracy stuff, because as we talked about earlier, volume one was like, and then this happens and then this happens. It was like really reading like a Wikipedia entry for something, really. Versus volume two, they are at least trying to kind of show this black girl from Montana who's kind of adopted into a white family. I mean, it's essentially like a reimagining of the Superman mythos. And then her conflicts as she's trying to be this, her her codename is Good Girl. So she's trying to be this sort of like model minority type of superhero and how she kind of runs up against some of the prejudices, you know, because of partially because of the color of her skin, but also because social media is so is so vile that anytime anyone does anything, even anything good online, it gets questioned because you're not doing it the way other people want you to do it. Yeah, that was good. Uh, Some of the images that they showed and just capturing the noise of today that you see in social media with her actions was, I thought it was impactful. I want to shift yeah. on book one oh. a little bit, if we can go back let's to continue, it. <laughs> let's, let, let's continue, yeah, shitting. 
Robin. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. This and I in the intro I talked about cringe inducing, and before this episode, I called our buddy Chris because I wanted to ask him a couple of questions as a black creator about this. The dialogue in book one made me uncomfortable, like watching Curb Your Enthusiasm uncomfortable. Because and it's the, the slang dialogue. And again, you could say, well, Roman, you don't get it. I don't speak this way. I don't have a lot of friends who speak this way. But it felt like it was trying too hard to be authentically black. And I asked a black friend, right? I just had to. I was like, when he's like, yeah, you can't write slang. It just doesn't work. And I was like, well, maybe I'm not in the target audience. And he's like, it just, it took me out of the action so many times when. But is that because we've never seen it written like that before? I mean, I'm just questioning it. I don't mind if it's in moments. Well, it is in moments, though. I mean, there's, there's only a few characters who speak in that dialect. But what I mean is in moments with those characters. I, okay, so here, I'll, I'll give the X-Men analogy. In the X-Men, Magneto tells all of them, I'm not going to call you Jean Grey. I'm going to call you Marvel Girl. I'm not going to call you Scott Summers. I'm going to call you Cyclops because that is your mutant name. And so is it either that's just the way they speak, Roman, get over it, but it just it doesn't read well mm-hmm. and slang is a very contemporary timely thing does it age as well in the story well that's i guess that's how people well, spoke but and even even the white guy the white guy spoke like a fucking bond villain and it, yeah God. that was bad <laughs> he he looked like one too no no but having that also be poor dialogue the dialogue in book one was bad. I will say the final line in book one was impactful. I don't know if you guys what remember, it, but well, I won't say it because it has a slur in it. But basically, it was. It, oh, just it was say imp- it. We're going to use that as an audio blurb for the, for the promo. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was implying that Kareem was basically saying that I'm their worst nightmare, a black man that you can't kill. Oh yes, and the way they said it, you're right. It worked, but again. It lost its power. That last yeah. line would have been more impactful if, because black people, brown people, yellow people, we all code switch. We all yeah. code switch. And yeah. then maybe these black people's superpowers don't have to code switch because they have power. But that last line would have been way more impactful had it been marred against just kind of normal dialogue. So I just kind of three, three counter examples, because uh, I was thinking about the dialect, the vocabulary as well. So one, I mean, you guys read Huck Finn, probably in high school, right? Yeah. And that was kind of, I'm sure your English teacher was like, this is written in the vernacular. You know, everyone's talking in complete slang in that book. Now, that one is pretty consistent all the way through. Both Huck and Jim are very much talking in their local vernacular. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm just thinking as a point of comparison, maybe it just kind of trains you to think along those lines. And because it's so consistent, you just go with it. So that's just one counterpoint. And then the second one, you guys have seen, I know you've seen The Wire, Roman, because you, I think you, you yeah, love I've referenced show. it multiple times. Yeah. It's the greatest show of all time. So remember the, the female hit, hit woman? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. She has a very particular way of talking that's absolutely like impossible to kind of like penetrate what she's saying. You kind of get the general to- like tone of what she's saying, but word for word, you don't actually know. So I was thinking about that character with relation to Black because her dialect would just come in suddenly unique to her. And most of the other characters would have much more, I guess, typical speech patterns. And then the third example, like Gambit from like X-Men, how he always has that ridiculous (laughs) Cajun accent that's completely cartoony. Again, this is sort of like, 
uh, a take on they're not trying to do like black dialect. It's, it's a you know white Southern dialect. So those are just three examples that I was thinking in relation to the depiction of certain characters, because not every character speaks in dialect, only a I, handful of them. I just think book one had three or four things where it didn't execute well. And because all three or four of them weren't executed well, it, it added up. Right. Uh, and again, okay. I'll, I'll come back to both the rednecks and the villain. The rednecks and the villain were not as scary because they felt like characters yes. in the book. And the scariest thing in the world for me, and I've had a few encounters with racist rednecks, right? Growing up in Alabama, isn't their accent. It's when they fit in and they blend in. And when they don't speak like a Bond villain, when they don't speak like a redneck, that's the scarier part when they're speaking like the people just around you. And so watch Watchmen did that very well. The TV show just now. Yeah. And so I just, it took the evil nature almost they're They're still evil and they're still villains, but it just took it away from them. They're almost comical. And I just, yeah, and that's it, actually a really good point. Yeah. The cartooniness basically makes them not, not really a it's threat. Like, it's or, like the, just, the devil is supposed to be the best looking person you've ever seen, you know? And like, they seem normal. They seem like someone you'd like to get a beer with. And that's that's just where the reveal wasn't there. Like, I just, I needed a more powerful villain to make the heroes feel like they were up against odds, not just comic book odds. They needed to spend more time, and this goes back to what Ryan said earlier, they had the world building, they did all that, but the character development wasn't there. And that's probably why the dialogue didn't stick as well for you, Roman. But decisions were made so quickly by Kareem to to leave or to join or to flip back or all of a sudden he really cares about not killing people where I, I mean, I didn't get that before. And I thought the opening scene, which sh- should have been more powerful of those black three kids, kids being, being shot, shot by the police. Yeah, I, I wasn't as impacted by it, maybe because I see it all the time on the news now, but I, I don't think it was constructed with as much tension as it could have. And well, nothing ever comes of it also. I mean, that's it. Yeah. You, it once he gets, like, Kareem doesn't even react to it afterwards. That was actually something that I thought yeah, was- his friends are his friends are dead. His friends were shot in front of him, man. He was shot and he, you know, and, and woke up from the dead after seeing his friends murdered. That would leave a huge psychological impact on you. And he yeah. never brings it up again. It's like the origin story. I mean, it's basically, you know, once Peter Parker slaps that spider off of him, you never see the spider again. Well, actually, you kind of do. They do try to bring the spider back a few times. But those are bad. <laughs> bad. You, you could argue that, I mean, growing up the way he did, it's perhaps possible that he's seen other people get shot. But uh, they didn't linger on it at all. Just I'm not asking for five pages on it. I'm asking for just an acknowledgement of it. And this happens a lot in stories that not to digress, but I always really get bothered in the original Star Wars when Leia just has no reaction to her entire planet being blown up, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and so similarly, there's a lot of those types of moments here where you're not acknowledging what's happened already five minutes ago, and you're moving on and and you're hitting on this woman instead or whatever. Yeah, a massive missed opportunity. I was flipping through those pages when him and his friends get shot. The best comics, and maybe you have a bias that the best comics, they use the thought balloons for the entire story. So the entire graphic novel, 10 issues by Chuck Dixon or Mark Wade or anyone, uh, the thought balloons or the thought squares in the modern era are from one person's perspective. And if Kareem is your protagonist, if Neo is your protagonist, 
you want almost everything told or observed in parallel from his point of view. And they just didn't do it. It's such an obvious choice. And I want to be inside of Kareem's head for this whole journey versus just mm. observing what he does. It's they actually make the weird decision in the opening to begin with the policewoman and somebody saying, tell us what happened. So you kind of set up this box narrative where the policewoman is all going to be from the policewoman's perspective. And then they show stuff that there's no way the policewoman would even know about. So it's just sloppy storytelling where the point of view is established as coming from one character very, very firmly. And a couple of pages later, they just go away from that. So you kind of wonder, well, why do you even waste two pages establishing this policewoman's interrogation? So they, they open up these threads and just don't even close it. And to your point also about Kareem, you know, at least when Batman's parents died, I mean, that's why he became Batman. When Uncle Ben died, that's when Spider-Man finally realized he needed to be a hero. I mean, Kareem sees his friends killed. And as Paresh mentioned, maybe he'd seen this sort of shit happen before. But in terms of drama, I mean, that's an opportunity where maybe you subvert expectations, where yeah. this isn't a defining moment for him because he's seen it before. That would be really interesting if they actually did that. That would have um, been wild, right? It's like, oh, it. this is just another day. Yeah, yeah, that would have actually have been have been a really interesting decision. And, and well, I yeah, want to challenge. I want to challenge. I want to hang on. I want to challenge that. Okay, isn't that the case? That's literally why he doesn't react to it because he's seen no, it before. No, no, they don't react. He doesn't react to it because a writer doesn't show him reacting to it because a writer forgot. There's like you have to at least signal. You have to at least be like, yeah, I'm not reacting to it because I've seen this shit before. Who cares? Yeah, there Who has cares? to be an acknowledgement. Yeah, he's got to acknowledge it in some way and make the and the writer needs to show that. There's a decision not to react. You can't just ignore it and fill in like some sort of narrative explanation. So I would say, no, they just they just forget about it. And that is an oversight. Fair. I also kind of want to say, because we continue taking massive dumps on volume one, it also kind of runs into this issue of over-explaining certain things and under-explaining everything else. For instance... They go full midi-chlorian on the explanation of the powers. <laughs> oh, my hey, God. Hey, metaquarks. The explanation. The quarks, man. Oh, I hate Dude, that. They don't. They should, I mean, that's one of those things you just fucking ignore. You just kind of say that this is this is the way it is. This is the way. On the other hand, they never explain. Like, some people, like, what is Kareem's? I think they kind of say that Kareem can copy other Yes. Powers, again, I don't know what he but, does. I can't tell. Yeah. And then even the and even volume two with Good Girl, what exactly are her powers? It seems to be some sort of Superman analog, but I'm not entirely sure. So you yeah. you give black people powers, and you have opportunity to give them unique powers, and in some instances they do. But with the main characters, Kareem, Good Girl, we never know exactly what the parameters of their powers are. And it's sort of like, that's the most basic thing. These are the characters where you're revealing the world to, and you don't even give them properly defined powers or weaknesses. And that I thought was also very, very sloppy. Because again, you have so much opportunity to do something really interesting and unique. And, you know, you, you, you don't. Can you One recall thing, anybody's powers? There was the ice dude. There was like... A blubbery dude. Actually, you're <laughs> right. But yeah, I was thinking of actually about Warren Ellis's Stormwatch because he introduces, and, and also his authority. I don't know if you guys have, I think you've read yeah, the authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Warren Ellis, especially with the authority, was starting with brand new characters that we are not familiar with. And yet he was able to sketch in their powers, their personalities, while basically making the fundamental action of each volume, like was basically just people beating the shit out of each other. And 
in black, you just have like a collection of characters. It's like a glut of, I'm just call them mutants, I guess, because they are reminded of X-Men. And for the first three quarters, I'm not sure who are the good ones and who are the bad ones, what each side wants. It's just a collection of men and women with superpowers, slightly different accents. And it is so undefined that I spent most of my energy trying to figure out who was doing what and why, when I don't think that's what the creators really wanted us to to focus on. Well, again, that's what book two kind of makes up for it. Even Brian Michael Bendis, and I hate yes. that we're comparing them to like white writers. Bendis originally wrote Ultimate Spider-Man and then was originally supposed to do Ultimate, but he's like, I can't do multiple characters. I can't do too many. And some people can and some people can't. And he later on figured out how to do it with Avengers and a few other things, but and even X-Men. But book one just felt too ambitious. And maybe it's because they didn't think they were going to have another shot. They had to put everything on the table. That's but fair. That's possible too. Too many characters. And I worry about Honestly, this should not be the first independent, The and it isn't the first, maybe it is, I don't know, but it shouldn't be the only black independent comic book that comes out. But take a couple of steps back, breathe. The reason book two works so well is because of the singular nature of the plot. One girl's story against the backdrop of mm. a universe where you don't know everything about the universe. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, book two just... It felt like a breath of fresh air after the shit show that was book one. And the only reason I read the first two books was because of this podcast. And that's what potentially sucks is everyone paid into the Kickstarter, paid into the hype. Maybe they even read the article that there's going to be a movie about this, but they probably only get one book. And if they make this movie, they can't make this movie with all of the shit thrown up against the wall. Yeah, actually, I kind of think that a lot of comics these days are pretty much like R&D for the movie version. I mean, like you think of like, yeah, and I think this is probably, I mean, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe essentially just used all of the old stories to to crank out these blockbuster hits. And they cherry picked um, the best parts. But JLA did the same thing, right? I mean, it's like, let's just take Frank Miller's Batman and we'll add Martha to it. You know, I mean, the foundation is here. You get like a great showrunner, get a really sophisticated writer's room to clean up. Uh, some of the stuff that doesn't work to drag this out over 10 to 12 episodes. And this could be really, really good. So I have no idea what the actual show is going to look like. I don't even know if it's going to be made, but I think you it's know, a movie, thinking, not a show, but yeah, it's still the foundation is there. You just get somebody yeah. there to tease it out, bring out certain characters, let other characters recede. It's basically, this is a rough draft. If you think of this as a rough draft, I, th- I think there's actually a lot of potential. And I'm really looking forward to seeing, maybe a little bit more sophisticated take on this particular concept. My, my fear is, if, and I haven't watched season two, but I've read the source material and watched season one of The Boys. I hope they don't The Boys it. Because there there is, a, book two has a lot more nuance and probably the best illustration literally of that nuance is the back cover of book one has, you know, these kind of like social media, good girl rescues cat from tree, good girl stops crack dam, vigilante dissolves airport attack. And then somewhere halfway through book two, it's the exact same sort of social media things, but good girls, racial preferences, America's not so sweetheart, altruistic or prejudiced, good girls Mm. reverse racism. And if there's any one page of this entire run, volume one and two, that sums up the motherfuckery of how America would react to this shit, 
Yeah. It's that page. It's yeah. the, they can't be heroes. Even though when she's dressed in the American flag, she's Clark Kent adopted to a white family. And she goes and rescues people Katrina style. What? You know, you get the Fox News headlines. The she's rescuing reality. the wrong people, right? Like, yeah. she's not rescuing enough white people. Actually, I, that I loved. And I actually kind of wish they pushed that a little bit further because I would have loved to have seen how she reacted to that. She kind of reacts to it initially, but it doesn't fundamentally change her yet. Maybe we'll see that in Volume 3, an evolution of, of her. So basically, I wish they had pushed that concept of how the reaction of everybody else affects her because she's a woman, she's a girl who's actually really tapped into social media. It clearly affects her. Uh, so there was definitely an opportunity there and maybe it's like going to happen further down the line where we see her perception of what she's doing start to change. Yeah, um, and it was a good example of just what Roman was mentioning earlier too about just in the beginning, it's all rainbows and lollipops and then all of a sudden things turn and it's the very obvious, okay, why is she here? Do we trust her? And all the bullshit that comes in from Fox News typically. But it goes back to what you're talking about. I think they could have gone deeper into the relationship with her father in this situation. Yeah. Because that's weird, man. I did not, tr I was expecting like a turn immediately from her father. I didn't trust him the entire time. And I don't know if you had the same reaction. I was worried they were going to turn him into a smarmy bureaucrat because he did raise her. I mean, he is the father and there's this move towards making him like a basic government man, like a handler. And I feel that would have been the easy way out. It would actually be interesting. Again, I don't know if they're going to continue the story of Good Girl, if they do, to see the conflict that he might have between being a father to this girl, but also the handler to this superhero who he needs to direct. And I would have actually liked to see a little bit of teasing out that concept because right now he seems much more on the side of government bureaucrat. There's definitely an opportunity there to push that dynamic between father-daughter slash superhero handler. Yeah, superhero handler is the right word. He almost seemed like yeah. a PR person. That's that's what he cared about more was polling numbers. She's like a candidate basically at this point. And then the whole time, Roman had a good word earlier in the introduction where he he called it Smallvillian. And that's very much what the beginning of the story is. And you expect her parents to be like Jonathan and Martha Kent, probably. And I like the subversion of that a little bit, but they didn't they didn't go too far in either direction because there was even a moment where he became kind of a warm father figure, checked himself, and yeah. was like, I'm here for you. But then it gets really interesting. It, the, the most interesting part of this story was the reveal of her sister and the discussion that they have. I was I was conflicted on that myself. So one thing, the reveal of the sister opens up this whole the Superman lore of this alternate dimension. And mm. They're both set. But we spent book one dealing with this lore of black people who are super powered being enslaved and stripped of their powers. And I'm kind of wondering if there's too much baggage now at this point, because now we've also established alternate dimensions where children are sent to, you know, Superman-like. Um, it's the future, right? Yeah, technically? yeah, yeah. I, yeah the f I, you know, I feel like you're opening up too much weird backstory at this point. I guess that's a minor quibble. We'll see what, what happens down the line. But the other issue I had, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, is that the sister-sister relationship is basically the same Professor X Magneto relationship that we had in volume one with the leader and his son who forms the 
warring faction of supervillains. So I, I felt it was a little repetitive. And as she's, you know, that's another thing, actually. I, that could have been drawn out. The older sister trying to recruit the younger sister, good girl. I'd like to see some sort of conflict with good girl. Um, you know, like, even when Darth Vader is telling Luke, join me, yeah. you know you want to. Luke's like, oh, I kind of want to, but no, I'm not going to do that. You know, you kind of want to see that sort of It jumped tension. too quickly, right? I thought it oh, jumped yeah. too quickly to them fighting all of a sudden. I'm like, come on. I thought you, you just said the sister is here. She's like, I never stopped searching for you. I was looking for you all this mm. time. And now you're now you're like I'm gonna go kill your family that was here. <laughs> that was that was just an acceleration. I mean, you went from zero to 120, and yeah. showing that incrementally over episodes or volumes would have been really really cool to see the. I mean, you meet your older sister for the first time. You think you're alone, and you're, you meet your older sister, and she's got powers. I mean, there should be some real sisterly bonding moments, some affection, and then when there's this t- attempt to turn you, you know, you're doing it wrong. Then Good Girl has this opportunity to really wrestle with her soul. And then when it comes to fisticuffs, the problem with the battle is that no one ever gets hurt. I mean, there's this cool thing where they're kind of like fighting across continents as superheroes would, but it doesn't really hurt anyone. It feels like they're just like slapping each other around. And, and again, back to the Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker thing. Luke Skywalker got dismembered by his own dad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's none of that sort of physical trauma or emotional trauma or spiritual trauma that, that there should be in this epic battle between sisters. You're, you're right. It would have been so much more impactful had they had some sort of regular reunion, right? Not in the middle of a mm-hmm. battle and they get to know each other. Some time passes and then they start to realize their warring ideologies and confronting that w- would have been the most interesting oh, so good. thing. I hope maybe they can do that in the movie. You never know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, again, I think this kind of emphasizes that there's a lot of really good foundation here. It's just almost felt sometimes like an outline of, and then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And then you just need to figure out a way to make that play out dramatically between two characters rather than over a couple of word balloons. Let me ask you you guys uh, one question really quick. Would you read the third book? I would, yeah. Yeah, I would read the third book. Are you going to watch the movie when it comes out? Yes. I'm more excited for the movie than the third book because the stakes are so much higher for the movie. I would hope that they kind of get some of these problems ironed out and really do. Again, actually, this would make a better show than a movie because like we've been talking about things moving so fast. You could really draw all of these characters out, all of these conflicts out, really do a lot if you just give this like a 10 episode season. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, but to your point, it's got to be 10 episodes because if you network drama this into 25, you know, kind of, it, yeah, it's a solid 10 to 13 and then get out and, and leave a lot of stuff unsaid because that's the biggest problem with the first book is they just- Midi-chlorians. It's all midi-chlorians. Well, the, the funny thing in that whole, exp- it's like a giant full page just text with with the two characters looking at each other and after he gives that full explanation the the police officer she just like damn like (laughs) yes that's that was my reaction too that's a lot to just put out there suddenly yeah and it's so unnecessary i mean you uh, you, when you had the hot lady doctor who actually never comes back you know she kind of gives this explanation of quarks or whatever and you're like all right some weird mumbo jumbo involving quarks and that's all you really need you don't need the full he's got more quarks than anybody else (laughs) (laughs) it's over nine thousand. oh my god (laughs) anakin (laughs) hey guys what are we reading next week oh raman do you remember the hard times you went through when you were a teenage girl no 
Well, neither do I. <laughs> but the cousins Jillian and Mariko Tamaki have a knack for bringing that particular experience to vivid life, whether you personally went through it or not. So next week, we're going to be reading Skim from 2008 and the 2014 book This One Summer, written by Mariko, illustrated by Jillian, both about the hard experience of growing up. So basically, it's going to be like Black AF without the powers. With teen girls. Teen and without girls. me. In spirit. <laughs> we, we know you'll be listening, just like you listened to our Hawksbox episode. I will. I promise. <laughs> Paresh, thank you so much for joining. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of books we read at qtdcomics.com. I'm Roman Segal. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.